Welcome to Sip Sip Hooray, the podcast for people who enjoy a good glass of wine and are curious about the who, what, why, where, and whens of this delicious beverage. If there is one person out there who could answer all of your questions, it is bound to be our guest today. She has what seems an encyclopedic depth of knowledge about all things wine and is best known as the author of the much celebrated Wine Bible. The Wine Bible has sold more than a million copies, and the third edition has just been released. It is a comprehensive guide to wine that is also fun, fascinating, and a great read. We are thrilled to be joined by Karen McNeil. She is the only U.S. winner of every major wine writing award in the English language. She also has won an Emmy, a James Beard Award, and oodles of other accolades. As you can imagine, Karen is a hero to us on Sip Sip Hooray. We are the two fangirling Marys who like to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm Mary Babbitt. And I'm Mary Orlin. After 324 rejection slips, Karen McNeil didn't stop pursuing her career as a writer. She went from writing about better to becoming the first American wine writer to pen a major book on wine which she calls a global wine book. Until then, the Brits, mostly men, had the corner on the market. Her first print run was 700 copies for the first edition of the Wine Bible. Fast forward to today, the Wine Bible has crossed the million copies sold mark. But Karen didn't want to call it the Wine Bible. This is just one of the fascinating stories about her life in wine, which now includes a multimedia wine platform where she does a digital newsletter, virtual tastings, and I've done several with her, to a line of wine glasses. Lest you think Karen is a wine snob, her recent Instagram post about should you hold a wine glass by the stem or by the bowl sent major shockwaves rippling through the wine world, especially since she called holding the glass by the stem a silly rule. We love her for that, and we are thrilled, Karen, to have you on Sip Sip Hooray. Welcome. Thank you, Mary and Mary. Wonderful to be here. Yes, we're really appreciative of you taking the time because I know you are busy right now. You've just launched this third edition. And uh, how is it going? Are you, are you doing all sorts of interviews? And, and, and what are you hearing about your latest Wine Bible? Yes, thank you for asking. I'm just back from a multi-city tour which was um, so heartwarming and wonderful. You know, when you're a writer, you, you're there by yourself. It's a very <laughs> solitary experience. And now all of a sudden you're out and about and, and meeting readers. And so it was very gratifying and heartwarming. And uh, yeah, it, it's been fantastic. The book is I, I guess it would be cliche to say flying off the shelves, but it kind of is flying off oh, the shelves. That's so great. I'm, I'm really, I'm super grateful. I'm glad to hear it. So good. Well, I think, um, Karen, you can probably confirm this, but I had heard you in another interview say that people will say to you, I feel like you're writing this for me. You're speaking to me in the book instead of, you know, talking down to me or, you know, because some wine writing can be condescending, but people feel they have a connection because you're like, you know, just sitting at the table in the kitchen talking to them. 
Yes, you know, the Wine Bible is not a simple book. I mean, it's not, you know, Wine 101, but it uh, it is often read. Uh, people tell me all the time that it's the first big wine book they ever read. Um, and it, you know, I'm not afraid to dive into uh, complicated, complex topics, but I hope that what is true is what you've just said, Mary, that... Um, that I explain things in a way that any reason I feel like any reasonably intelligent person would be saying to themselves, oh, I get that. That's not so hard. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think uh, regarding writing, we all write in a way that we, for the most part, don't speak. Um, and you can read anybody's even memo. Um, writing tends to be a, a little some can be a little awkward, a little formal. And wine writing can be both awkward, formal, and it can sort of have the attitude of, I just drank all these great wines, too bad you weren't there. Exactly. You know? I feel you know, that a lot of times. Yeah, it's very off-putting. And um, so I work really hard at being a, a good, what I call a conversational writer. Mm -hmm. So that the book reads like a conversation as opposed to reading like formal scientific writing. Well, I think you've nailed that because when I first heard of the wine Bible and first saw, I thought I never, how this is beyond me. I'm intimidated by the whole notion of this and I would never understand what's all the terminology in it, yada, yada, yada. And then I opened up the book and discovered you created this miraculous thing, which is a comprehensive guide to wine that actually reads like a fun, conversational favorite book. And best of all, for me, you could I could open it up at any page and find something fun. It's not like I had to start at the beginning and read all the way through to to follow the line. You know what I mean? It's like it's a just open it up and like put point your finger and you've got a great sentence you've got a great factoid a great little box of information mm -hmm. well you know wine is inherently fascinating and uh there are all kinds of things that are um interesting or crazy or just you know cultural tidbits mm -hmm. that make uh wine writing come alive i i remember when i started to write the new zealand chapter I, um, I, I, you know, I do all my, um, I do a lot, a lot, a lot of research. And I come across this uh, piece about the number of sheep in New Zealand. And I realized that there are like 20 sheep for every winemaker in New Zealand. That, you know, <laughs> I know that had to go in the book. It just had to go in the book. And of course, there's a fabulous picture of these super adorable sheep. Yeah. go along with that caption and that was really fun and unexpected yeah so you know but that's i want people to do exactly what mary just said about open the book anywhere and later that night say to someone in their family uh wow do you did you know that da -da 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 that is leonardo case. da vinci got a vineyard for painting the last supper Exactly. That yeah, was one fun. of the cool little facts. So cool. <laughs> I know. Or um, the little box, break, breakout box you have about the origin of the word booze. Like, you know, I mean, it was a Dutch word 
for um, drinking to excess and was considered very much a derogatory word back then. Yes. All of these things are, you know, they, they make wine come alive on the page. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think as, as readers, we, we all have a, a kind of limited tolerance for how many gray pages after gray pages after gray pages you can read before you're just mind numb. Mm -hmm. And so yes. um, I don't want to suggest that the wine Bible is not serious because as you know, um, you know, if you want to know the regulations for Chianti, they're in there. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, but what makes all of that information uh, forgive the pun, but digestible is all of all of the fascinating cultural and culinary and artistic and historic and even religious uh, ideas that surround wine and and make it um, you know make it come to life. And yes. I am so glad you've included so many of those details i mean i love that you say you can't understand malbec without understanding the tango right it is so true you know one day um when i was uh in argentina doing research my editor called me and she said by the way where are you and i said i'm in argentina she said well what where are you what are you doing and i said well I, actually i'm about to take a tango lesson and she said, <laughs> Karen, it's a wine book, you know, it's a wine book. And I said, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But I don't think you can understand Malbec unless you get the tango. Um, I really believe that. That's awesome. So how did that tango lesson that. go? Well, uh, the person who supervised it was none other than Nicholas Catena himself. Really? So I, uh, one of the leading icons, he's the Robert Mondavi yes. of Argentina. Uh -huh. And um, so I, I felt that I, uh, I couldn't embarrass myself, you know, so I, I, I did my best, but I'm not sure that you just sort of step into the tango your first time. <laughs> I, I don't I nailed think, it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's a lifelong pursuit and yes. you have to really practice and dance a lot. <laughs> yeah. And of course, I didn't have the slinky dress you're supposed to have. Oh, so. well, yeah, maybe it was that I think it was I was missing the dress. <laughs> there you go. It wasn't your fault. <laughs> well, so this third edition, okay, the first one was if I have this right, the first edition came out in 2000? 2001. 2001. Okay, second edition was it around 2015? Yes. Okay. And now fast forward 2022 third edition. What prompted this? And can you tell us some of the, the new information or new stuff you added to this version? Well, you know, many people would assume that there's uh, some amount of time goes by, the wine world changes, and it gets bigger. And mm -hmm. now you have to do a new edition. And to some extent, um, that is, in fact, true. And not to some extent, that is, in fact, true. But what is also true, as you can imagine, is you, you yourself, you yourself, the writer, have to be ready for this. It's going to be five years of writing and research. Five years? It, yes. It's going to be, the first one took 10 years, so I'm actually getting pretty fast. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. You've, you've cut your time in half. Exactly. I'm just speeding along now. Um, <laughs> 
But, you know, you uh, and you're not really I mean, I have a, an advance, but believe me, authors advances have like the shelf life of yogurt. You you go. by. <laughs> so, um, you know, you're going to have to sustain uh, yourself that whole time in a very solitary way. So um, it, it's also true that just you have to be ready. So the yeah. wine world had changed. The wine world has gotten bigger. If you had said to me 20 years ago when I wrote the first wine Bible that there would ever be a chapter on Great Britain, I would say absolutely not. Mm-hmm. For Japan, no, no, no. There's not going to be a chapter on, on countries like that. But as we all know, those two are very vibrant wine producers um, uh, today, and there are there are you know ten countries coming up very fast that are in this wine bible that were not even in the the second edition. Well, for example, one of them is Brazil, and I just got back from a media press trip to Brazil and was blown away by the wine. Yeah, it's 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 astounding. And some of these are like Brazil are old wine producers who are becoming new again. Right. Some of them are brand new places uh like Great Britain and um some of them are sleeping giants like like China that mm-hmm. is um just, you know, 20 years from now will be goodness only knows uh, how enormous it will be on the on the wine front. So, yeah. Well, you know, speaking of China, that was one of the things I found fascinating. Uh, you have a little breakout box you call the Cassis Conundrum. Yes. Could you explain that to us? I remember myself when I was learning about wine, the first time someone said to me uh, that a Bordeaux tasted like Cassis. And because I was a bit too afraid to say anything, I I just wrote that down, right? Someone else is smarter than me, knows more about, well, at least knows a lot more about wine than me, says this wine tastes like cassis. I wrote down this wine tastes like cassis. (laughs) And over time, I realized that even though I don't think I'd ever tasted a red currant berry, which is Mm. what this is, I uh, I I thought to myself, okay, I've I've sort of inculcated what cassis ness is, but at least cassis is a concept in uh, in the English language. And had I wanted to, I could have gone out and bought well, black cassis, um, black currants, excuse me, black currant liqueur, <clears throat> and gotten pretty close. Excuse me, ladies, I have to uh, go to the door. Someone's knocking on the door. One second. That's okay. okay. It's probably some wine being delivered. <laughs> <laughs> I should also take this chance to say, I um, apologize for my scratchy voice today. I'm getting over a cold. Mary, it's, it's your sexy voice. It's my, <laughs> it's my whiskey voice. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so to pick this up, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> I think it's catching now. Um, You know, thinking about that years later when I became more fluent in descriptions, but as the wine world got bigger and bigger, I realized, and as a teacher of wine, I realized that the words that we use in the United States, which are often very similar to the words used in um, Great Britain and used in Europe, are not words that necessarily one should assume 
that everyone else in the world would know. Mm -hmm. And um, I had many friends in China who would be sort of tearing their hair out saying, well, I've never even tasted a blueberry. I I don't know what this could possibly taste like. And so um, as one of the interesting aspects of wine is that as it grows more global, the language that we use to describe wine flavor will also need to get more international and more global. And already in places like China and Japan, it's fascinating when you go there and taste with a group of, let's say, Chinese sommeliers who can speak amongst themselves um, using uh, terms for fairly, what are to me, obscure Chinese sauces, let's Mm -hmm. say, in, in describing Pinot Noir. And you think, wow, I I wish I knew this Chinese sauce because it it describes Pinot Noir perfectly. Right. And even the types of fruit, the yuzu or ube or, um, yes. And spices, especially, you know, for, um, in the Asian world, whether it's in India or Thailand or China, they're all very different than the spices that, you know, we, when we say spicy, it's either black pepper or baking spices. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, one needn't go to, uh, to Asia either. I mean, you can go to the Caribbean, the Caribbean mm-hmm. has, uh, all kinds of foods and, um, uh, culinary terms. South America have, has culinary terms yes. that are unique to itself. Yeah. It's great to see the wine world expanding and becoming more global. And I know you consider yourself a globalist, a generalist when it comes to wine. Um, so I just want to go back a little bit just so because we think your story is so fascinating. I want our listeners to know how you got started because you didn't start off writing about wine. (laughs) No, you, I mean, today, actually, you can start off writing about wine because blogs exist. And but when I started as a journalist, blogs did not exist. And you had to sort of work your way up through um, publications, hoping to get your first article published. It was very, very, very hard to do. I lived in Uh, In New York City, when I started out, um, I lived in a fifth floor walk up on the edge of a neighborhood called Hell's Kitchen. Okay. For obvious reasons, it was (laughs) a pretty uh, difficult place. And, um, you know, I collected, I think you mentioned 324 rejection slips. Yes. My first article was published. That's amazing. It's it's daunting. How did you not just give up? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, it's it's so impressive, and I feel like every aspiring writer should know that that's what it took for you. Who are you? Are a terrific writer. You're so eloquent. You are a conversationalist. You're able to bring everyone into the tent with you, and to know that 324 times you were told no, and you kept going. Just ah. Oh. It makes my heart happy that there's people who say, you know what, I believe deeply enough that I, you know, I think I would be wounded after maybe number 10 or something. (laughs) It's not meant to be, but um, it's so impressive. Well, thank you. I I really, that's very kind of you. You know, what made it especially hard for me back then is 
you're unpaid all that time. Right. You need exactly. to make money. <laughs> no. You know, you're writing your little heart out and and uh, walking uh, up to your fifth floor uh, studio apartment. Um, and the going is really rough. In fact, um, in my own case, I, I was writing back then about everything, not um, not wine. And I was not writing about wine because I didn't feel, even though I loved it, I didn't feel I knew enough about it to, to write about it. Um, mm. And again, you didn't, in those days as a journalist, you had to sort of demonstrate your expertise before you could uh, give your opinion on something. And I knew I, I, I didn't know enough to be a wine writer. But so I was writing about, you know, women's issues and politics and poetry and all these other kinds of and social phenomenon. And uh, one day, because I was so poor, I, I had the light bulb went on and I, I thought, oh, I have this brilliant idea. I should try writing about food because maybe they give you samples. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and that was, that was a good idea. It was a, really a great idea. idea. I was on food stamps. I had a desperate oh my goodness. diet. And so I, I, uh, I started writing um, uh, about food and indeed, you know, uh, I, I'm not a very large person and some chef would take one look at me and say, you know, here, try this mushroom pizza or whatever. And, um, and so I began writing about food and the very first article of mine that sold was on food. It was, as you mentioned, on, on butter. And it took many years after that of first becoming a pretty successful food writer to then um, uh, building my knowledge of wine enough that I felt like I could begin to write about wine. Wow, that's amazing. Well, and I want to hear that part of the journey, but I really, if you could back up just a little bit, because there's something else I learned about you that I also think is so impressive and speaks to what a brilliant um, together person you are. Am I correct? Did you run away from home as a teenager? Yeah. And you lived on your own at like 14 or 15 years old? Yes, uh, just a, a bit before my 15th birthday. Uh, and, yeah. yet, and you were the valedictorian of your high school too? Yes. <laughs> like any other runaway, you'd be like, well, you survived. That's the success in itself. <laughs> but the fact that you not only were living alone, but then still doing studying and getting good grades and everything is crazy. And you were drinking wine at the age of 15 when you were doing your homework. Yes, I was. I, uh, as luck would have it, I had no one to tell me I couldn't. <laughs> and how, um, and how I, did you get by? Uh, well, I did have to go to um, just one checkout checker at the local uh, grocery store. I even knew oh. her schedule because she never carded me, never once. Oh. To buy your wine, okay. <laughs> to, buy, to buy wine. So, um, but you know, I, I, and what was I buying? 89 cent Bulgarian red, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fancy, fancy. Fancy, right. Um, but, but living I, on your own at such a young age, how did you manage? I know. Uh, well, I worked before school, I worked after school, and I worked two jobs on the weekends. And, and you're still valedictorian. That's Karen. I've just, it's amazing. Wow. It's, it's a, you are that like a self-made person. It's very what cool. A, what an inspirational story. Mm -hmm. well, thank you. It's, I didn't feel too much like I had a choice. Yeah. Well, isn't that the case with so many, for people who you you're in that situation, whatever it is, and you just keep doing what you need to do. You don't even think about 
Well, you chose survival and you chose yeah. your, your future and you chose yourself, you know, I, I, I admire that. Thank you. So, okay. But you said we, sorry, that was my little detour from your, so you were writing about food, eating better, things were going all right. And yet you were, you had this growing love of wine and maybe the desire to write about wine, mm -hmm. but you felt you needed to learn more. So mm -hmm. how did you turn that corner and get to become a wine writer? Well, even though I was now uh, a successful um, food writer and um, supporting myself in, in New York City as, as such, I was still a writer and writers don't make a lot of money, even successful writers. I mean, mm -hmm. you have to be in a pantheon of about 20 people to really make serious money. So that was not me. Um, and in wanting to write about wine, the problem was that I couldn't afford it. Um, I could afford a lot of basic wine, but I never really knew what great wine tasted like, because for that, you needed either really wealthy friends, which I didn't have, wealthy parents, which I didn't have, parents or wealthy, and um, or, or money yourself to go out and try and buy um, really extraordinary wine. And, and in those days in New York, surprisingly enough, this wasn't all that long ago, but there were no wine classes back then. There were retailers did not do tastings. There was in a sense, no way into the wine business. There was no way to learn about wine, to get any exposure, Cruvenets and things like that, wines by the glass, none of that really existed. People forget that all of that's very, very new. That, that really blew my mind that, yeah. yeah, because it's so prevalent now, especially in New York City. Yes. I mean, the whole wine culture in America is fantastic now, but it's very, it's very new, as I said. So anyway, um, at that time, uh, most wine journalism in the whole country was done by about five or six men in New York, and they wrote for every national magazine and newspaper, even uh, magazines that you might logically think might have a woman wine writer, like let's say Vogue mm -hmm. or Good Housekeeping. No, those columns were written by men. Wow. So, uh, and these guys were very good, very smart, really knew their wine, uh, good writers. It was, they were terrific. So a friend of mine was one of those men and he knew that how much I really wanted to learn about wine. And he asked the others if I could come and taste with them every week because every week these men were invited to these fabulous tastings. You know, the Chianti Classico producers would fly in or the port producers would fly mm -hmm. into New York and hold these wonderful tastings. So the vote came down that I could, they would let me come and taste with them on one condition. Mm -hmm. And that was that I not talk. What? What do you mean you don't talk? Yeah. Like, so I didn't. I, I, I didn't talk for years. You were seen and not heard? That's seen and not heard, right. That you know, and really I, didn't, I, I, I didn't want to give my opinion as far as I was concerned, I didn't have yet a valid opinion, but I was desperate to ask these guys questions. I'm sure. Uh, I, yeah. You know, because they were so, they really knew a lot about wine. Um, yeah, That's I, interesting. I get what so, you're saying. Like you didn't want to be spouting off and like, um, 
and you, so you, you were you, humbly saying like, I don't, I get that I'm not going to be one of the people talking about this wine, but to not be able to be really welcomed at the table is, you know, and not an a, equal, but a an welcome equal, member, right, you know. Right. Yeah. Well, it's right. unthinkable today, right? It is. The, uh, I was going to say post-feminism. I hope we're not post-feminism. Uh, I hope not either. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's really, I but mean, it I, is. I think it's, young women today would be horrified. That's, but That's crazy. But again, you did what you needed to do to experience yeah. these wines to, and you probably learned a lot just listening to them. I learned a tremendous amount from these men. And I learned not only, I not only experienced wines, I experienced their seriousness, their comportment, how they thought, uh, their determination themselves to really understand these wines. And years later, I think I adopted their um, intensity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So cool. And um, there's a little tidbit that I love that I think um, with the Wine Bible, you've outsold all of their books combined. Yes. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Those sales speak volumes. You don't have to say a word. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I shouldn't say that boastfully. I, I don't really mean that boastfully. I know, I that's do. not you. We're playing. Sorry. Yeah. It is. It, and, and that's another, another lovely thing about your character. Yes. You're not and, braggadocious in any way. No. And that was another world things in another yeah. time. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and also, I mean, I had the, the, the benefit of writing a book at the time when American wine culture was burgeoning. And I think for the people who immediately went before me, it was, it was tougher. It was tougher mm -hmm. for writers of wine books because the sheer audience in the United States was a much smaller audience. Well, absolutely. And I mean, okay, the first edition of the Wine Bible came out in 2001. That's when the TV show that Mary Babbitt and I did in Wine Country premiered. Wow. Fabulous. So, yeah. So um, we, um, we kind of know what the, um, the world, wine world was like then. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It makes us not OGs, but maybe it just makes us <laughs> OLDs. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So, so Mary Orlin mentioned in her intro that when you wrote this book, you said it took you 10 years, the wine, the first edition of the wine Bible, but, and you didn't want to call it the wine Bible. Was that because you felt that was just, um, too big to, um, divine? I don't know. What was your reasoning for not wanting to call it the wine Bible and how did you get talked into it? Yeah, I, I felt that it was too egotistical. Um, it was, you know, it was a, it's a statement of a, uh, of a, of a title. And at that time, having just finished the manuscript, you know, I, I didn't know if 20 people would buy the book or, or 200 people would buy the book. Sure. It never even occurred to me that 2000 people might mm -hmm. buy the book. So to call it the wine Bible was, I just didn't feel it. I, 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 I was terrified to do that. And my, it, in fact, all those 10 years, it had a different name. 
Um, and it was referred to in my contract um, with Workman as a different name. And when I brought the manuscript in, Peter Workman, let me, let me see if I remember this exactly, uh, looked at it for about a half an hour. I sat there silent. Oh my gosh, how, what torture. I know, silent and terrified. And he said, this is great. And we're going to call it the wine Bible. Wow. And I, I said, absolutely not. <laughs> and he said, well, apparently you, my dear, did not read your contract very well because authors have no say in the title of their book. The title of a book is considered part of a book's marketing and not part of its content. And he really? said, yep. He said, you're a subject expert and I don't, uh, I, I take everything that you've put into the book as, as accurate and I believe it and it's your decision. But what's on the outside of the book is my decision. And he was right. So it did get called the Wine Bible, even though I cried. You <laughs> cried? Well, it's a great name. Oh. But you know, he was right. It's a really good title and mm -hmm. it, it sums it up. He was right. Because, and, and it didn't get you in trouble. No, I did feel like living in New York, at the very least, I would get terrible letters from, you know, uh, let's say, um, 10 rabbis or something. <laughs> but so, um, you know, actually, it, it turned out to be a really wonderful title, and I'm forever thankful. That's so awesome. That is so awesome. Um, so there's a saying, it takes a village. And I think, you know, with the first edition, it was probably all just you, right? Right. But um, now I think you have a team that helps yes. you. Can you tell us about who, um, about um, Team Karen McNeil? Yes. Well, I have my own company, uh, Karen McNeil and Company, here in headquartered in Napa Valley. And so I have staff. Um, and for the Wine Bible, this third edition that just came out, I had a group of about six researchers around the country. Um, who would not, uh, no one did any writing. I wrote every word, but I, you know, I could uh, work with each of these researchers on various chapters that they were working on. So someone might be working on Burgundy, someone else might be working on Georgia, someone else might be working on Italy. And, you know, I would, I would be able to, we'd be able to go back and forth because the research is enormous. And, uh, you know, you have to be able to turn to someone, and, and that's the only way I could do it in five years versus 10, you have to be able to turn to someone and say, okay, look up at the, in the EU, uh, uh, European community regulations, what the specific regulations are for uh, planting high altitude vineyards. I don't know, right? I'm just making this up right now. But the point is that finding one small fact that might be embedded in just one sentence, that fact could take you a week to find. Wow. So um, uh, having a group of researchers was, was great. And then my um, second in command uh, here, Susan Wong, was the sort of the operational organizer of, you can imagine, just uh, thousands of 
pages of research and thousands of pages of writing. And every chapter did not have just one version. I mean, there are probably 35 versions of the Bordeaux chapter alone. Really? Ooh. Because as you're writing, you're writing, you know, you're writing along and you're discovering sort of new information. And let's just say you discover something new about tannin. Like somebody has to keep track of where does tannin appear in this entire 5,000 page manuscript? Because oh my it, gosh. it has to change every place because wow. something new has been discovered about tannin. So now the Napa Valley chapter has to change. Bordeaux has to change. Maybe Tuscany has to change a little bit. Argentina mm -hmm. has to change, right? So um, it's uh, it's from, even if you do no writing whatever whatsoever, it's helpful to have this person who is just literally keeping track on giant spreadsheets mm -hmm. of, of facts and information and where we are on every chapter as it moves, as the big book moves forward. Oh, and, yeah. then, and then we had two photo researchers as, as well, who were reading everything and like, okay, we got to find a nice picture of New Zealand sheep. <laughs> right. That, right. So it's, it, it's a, it is a village. Yeah. Well, I'm amazing. glad because you are a stickler for the research yes. and I'm glad you have some people helping me with that because otherwise it'd just be, you know, brain bursting. Yes. So what, um, what surprised you the most or what did you not expect that happened in revising the third edition? Hmm. Um, I decided for this edition to write a, a chapter I'd never written before called Wine in the Ancient World. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to write that chapter for, in a sense, for my myself, because when people would say to me, just, you know, you'd be at, at a dinner somewhere or something, and someone would say, when did wine begin? And I realized I, I had a very... Only, only a very basic idea of when that was. And I, I wanted to have a much firmer grasp of wine in the ancient world. So I knew this wouldn't be a giant chapter. And I thought, I don't know what I gave myself, like a month to do it, to do all the research and all the writing. Well, once I got in there, I realized, oh my God, is this complicated? Because first of all, I mean, a very simple fact that makes it all very hard to research is that archaeologists and anthropologists don't talk about time in the same way. You know, some people are saying 9,000 years ago. Some people are saying 600 BC. Mm -hmm. um, this, this, this happened. Okay. Some people are saying during the Iron Age. Some people are saying during the Neolithic period. Yes. So the first thing I had to do was make myself a chart. I literally hand drew this chart trying to get all the times equivalent. Oh, gee. And then I realized, oh no, you're kidding me. Something like the Neolithic period, which is the most important period for wine. The Neolithic period is different depending on where you are. Really? Like different countries mean? in different countries yeah. or different regions yes. of the world? The <gasps> Neolithic period happens in China before it happened in the 
in the Tigris and Euphrates River Valley. Oh, wow. Where the Fertile Triangle is, which is where wine began in Europe. So, um, you know, that just getting, just understanding how anthropologists talk and making sure you're comparing apples to apples was, was really important. And so that resulted in a, I think, a, a chapter that I'm, I'm super proud of. It's not long, but it really does tell the story of wine in the ancient world. Well, I was very surprised to learn that really the first archaeological evidence of wine is in China about 9,000 years ago. Yes, the, the Chinese um, in Henan province in uh, uh, an area called Jiahu, J-I-A-H-U, were the first to pro most probably, almost assuredly, the first to make wine from grapes. And uh, and also interestingly enough, probably the first people to carve musical instruments. See, I see what I mean, <laughs> a wealth of information. Absolutely. There's but a I lot in that noggin of yours. But I love that because I think it makes more relatable for people that, okay, so, you know, wine's not in a vacuum. It's occurring at the same time uh, these other cultural events are happening. Right. Yes, of course. And that's going on right now, too. Um, one, of the, one of the sadder aspects of COVID for all of us is that, um, you know, it's, it's kept all of us, for the most part, home. And wine has been a wonderful reprieve. You, you can travel a little bit by um, you know, having that wonderful Brunello di Montalcino with a, a, a plate of great pasta. But um, as everyone who has visited wine country anywhere in the world knows, it all comes alive when you travel, when you're there right in the, in the culture in which it's made. Yes. Exactly. So well, Karen, true. so you brought up Brunello. I have to tell you, I have this great memory um, of a tasting you did. It was many years ago in San Francisco, and it was with a, I don't know if it was one particular winery or a group of Brunello producers, but you did the, the masterclass about it, and you just were so passionate about Brunello. It was a wine that I really didn't know at the time, but I was like, okay, if she is so taken with this and so incredibly passionate about it, I've got to learn more. So thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. I remember that. That was a really fun tasting. It I, was. Yeah. Whenever I do a tasting like that, I, I often feel, you know, people sometimes will say, are, are you nervous to present in front of a large group of people? And I always think, no, because I'm here with these fantastic wines. And if no one showed up, I would sit here happily with all these 10 wines and have a, an absolute blast. <laughs> I love that. That's great. You're never well, alone. Never I love alone. that. But I'm, I'm glad we got to share those wines with you. Absolutely. Thanks. And that Mary learned about Brunello. And you do a lot of stuff outside of writing. Can you tell us about some of the teaching you do and some of the ways the outreach you have to uh, wine consumers. Um, Mary Orland thought you might be teaching at Stanford. I know you do some corporate events. Tell us about the ways in which you're kind of putting wine at educating people 
um, through different events and stuff. And then also as a, an addition to that question, what are people most curious about? What do you get asked over and over again? And what do people feel like they really want to know about wine? Hmm. Yes, thank you. Well, our, you know, Karen McNeil and company writing is just one um, small part of it, actually. Uh, we do do a lot of wine seminars and tastings for groups and for corporate clients. We have a lot of law firms and insurance companies and investment banks. Uh, but we also do uh, a lot of private tours. So, for example, People will um, hire me as their personal tutor to take them to really high-end um, estates, in particular in California, in the Napa Valley or Sonoma, uh, to do private sit-down tastings with the owner or winemaker, uh, which is a very different experience than sort of standing in a tasting room with 30 other people um, going to a wine region. Totally. So, Yes, so we do uh, we do that a lot, and people just contact us at Karen at Karen, either at KarenMcNeil.com and inquire about those. But we we also do consulting for universities, for hotels, um, and uh, yes, I teach a class. In fact, the Stanford class is coming up. It's a continuing education class given over Zoom. It's called uh, Wine's Connection to Place and Culture. It starts at the end. This next uh, session starts at the end of January. It's six Wednesday evenings. And we send you ahead of time um, where to buy the wines. To, it's an hour from 5.30 to 6.30. We have a, it's a wonderful, wonderful, fun class. And um, you can go on Stanford Continuing Education to find that. Or besides the Wine Bible, our, our big um, other literary project is um, a digital newsletter we do every week called Wine Speed, one word. And Wine Speed goes out to 40,000 subscribers. I've been a subscriber for a long time. I love it. Isn't it fun? It's yeah. It, oh, it's so fun. So yeah. So I want you to talk about it, but I have a couple of questions about just how you come up with the quizzes, the wine of the week, all this good stuff. Yes. Well, it, just for your listeners, it's important to know that it is, it is free um, because we want to, you know, spread the word and you can read it very quickly. It probably takes like two minutes to read the whole thing, maybe five minutes. Um, it's very fun. Every, every issue, it comes to your email box every Friday. Every issue has a a wine quiz that we, uh, I would, I would think that by now I would be sort of tapped out of ideas for wine. No, quizzes. Right. But uh, people write into me every week saying, Oh, I got the wine quiz. Right. I'm so happy. <laughs> I know. I'm always like, yes, I got it right. And if I didn't get it right, I have to go back and take it again. Yes. Um, and true falses and numbers and, uh, yeah. and recommendations num every week for wines to know and steals and deals. Yes, yeah. I love that. Yeah. So. Yeah. So how do you go about choosing what you're going to include each week? We work about, ideally, about six weeks out, and we start forming these um, th these 
news, these digital newsletters uh, by looking at the content and making sure that they're really well balanced. So if we had a quiz that was on champagne, we wouldn't do uh, you know, a number or or a wine to know about champagne, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Yeah. So that each one is really fascinating, kind of like the wine Bible. My goal mm -hmm. is that no matter who you are and what kind of wine you like, there's going to be something in wine speed that you're going to say to yourself, wow, I didn't know that. That is so interesting. Oh, absolutely. I mean, every week I say that and I love the numbers section. And it's like, oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I, I will just honestly say that sitting around my office at our office meetings, I you know, uh, every month or so we think, God, we should charge for wine speed because it is, it's really, you know, it's, it takes us a long time to do. And I'm sure people would pay for it. At least some people would pay for it, but it's, it's, it's a gift, right? It's a labor of love. We want to grow the pie. So yeah, we never charge for it. Well, thank so you. Cool. We, as one of your subscribers, we appreciate that. Absolutely. <laughs> having seen so much of the world, met so many interesting people of all walks of life, I guess I wonder at this point, if you weren't a wine writer, if you weren't as involved as you are doing what you're doing, is there something else you could see yourself as? I think I would be either uh, a linguist or an anthropologist. I, I, I love trying to understand um, what makes people in different cultures makes them who they are. And, and as a writer, as you can tell from reading the Wine Bible, I love language. I, you know, I work so hard at trying to be a good writer. Um, and I'm, I'm careful with language. I, I want, I really want it to bounce on the page um, and have impact. So uh, I could I could see myself stuffed away in a university linguistics department somewhere. <laughs> That's so cool. So Karen, one of the things um, before we go, I have to ask you about is um, you've said the best way to not learn about wine is to always drink what you like. Um, and you say, if you really want to learn about wine, pick one country drink nothing else for six months from that country, but then try another country. So can you explain the theory behind that and why you think that's a good way for people to learn about wine? Heck, it's kind of revolutionary. It's not what most people do. No, and it's very important because we, all three of us and lots of listeners I know, uh, know this too, that the very first reaction most of us have to wine is being overwhelmed you walk into a wine shop or even look you know online and you're like holy god what for which of these 4000 wines am i supposed to buy for dinner tonight right right and it's 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 logical to be overwhelmed frankly um and the when i was teaching myself about wine i realized that i would be this was going to be like a tsunami coming over me that i would never <laughs> I would never survive this tsunami unless I went about it in a more um, uh, uh, planned kind of way. And so I kind of stumbled on this myself, but it really worked for me. And I've suggested it to a lot of people since, which is 
start with any country. It doesn't even matter what country you start with. You could start with Australia, let's say. And for a month at least, and preferably two months, only drink wines from Australia. Don't, don't even go to another section on, 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 uh, you know, on the internet. Don't go into a different section in the store. Only drink wines from Australia. And if you do that for two months, you'll realize at the end of the two months, okay, you have kind of a feel for Australia. You have a feel for the flavors. You have a feel, literal feel for the textures. You, you now recognize a couple of names and a couple of places. And you're like, okay, I kind of, I have a, a foot now in the door of Australia. And now you go to someplace completely different, okay, Tuscany, I don't know. Again, it could be anywhere. And now only drink wine from Tuscany. Uh, for two or three months. And at the end of that two or three months, you're like, wow, okay, now, boy, Australia and Tuscany, very different. Now I have a feel for Tuscany too, an understanding a bit of those kinds of flavors and what to expect. And if you really, and you go around the world doing this, um, if you really want to up your game, then during those periods, you should try and cook at least a few foods from that area too. Ooh. So uh, let's say you were doing Tuscany, maybe once a week, you buy yourself a, a Chianti and make some Tuscan pasta dish. Um, and this is a slow process, right? But by the end of, let's say two years, it's fun and nobody, you know, there's, you don't have to do it fast. No one's asking you to become a wine expert in the next 30 days. So you'll wake up two years from now, having had a blast and actually knowing more than you ever thought you would. It's just fantastic. And, and it's kind of a fun assignment too. It's a fun little quest, you know. And you can do it with others. You can, um, when I first did it myself, I, I did it with a, um, a, a boyfriend. <laughs> so many good things in the old days happened that way, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he would buy the wine and on the nights that we would cook, I would cook the, the, the dinner from wherever and, um, and, and look up the recipes and cook the, the meal. And he would buy the wine from that place. And we usually would taste at least two wines a night from whatever place we had assigned ourselves to. And we, we learned a ton, just him and I sitting at the dinner table, laughing and doing this. That is so well, cool. And now have you, have you covered all the different countries? Is there another country that you need to spend a month or two drinking exclusively? Yeah, no, I, I, uh, well, now I don't have so much the luxury of doing it that way anymore because, you know, we taste, uh, let's see, how much do we taste in my office? We taste, I don't know, two or three cases of wine a week. And, um, and often they, there are reasons that they need to be tasted, you know, now we don't always have the luxury of saying, no, you know, we're not going to um, taste any Chilean reds till next October or something. Something will happen. We'll be like, hmm, we got to get, got to get on a, a Chilean uh, wine here. Yeah. Uh, so it's different now, but I, I think it's really the way that I uh, sort of allowed myself or, or yeah, allowed myself to, to, to really know wine in a, 
in a way that I could remember it, because that's the other thing. If you if you're just always tasting wines from here and there and everywhere and not paying attention, you never remember anything. So you wake up two years later and someone will say, well, what do you think about the wines of of uh, Spain? You're like, oh, I think I tasted one or two, but I don't really remembered them. You know that you want to really that. good point. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point because you it kind of the repetition you kind of embedded in your brain and your taste right. buds really get familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I think I'm going to start doing that. It's fun to do really. Yeah. It's awesome. I like it's the idea awesome. too. When you, you had me with the candy and the dinner, I'm like, okay, it's old. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Karen, there is so much we could talk. We could spend another hour or two talking to you because you, um, address so many great topics in such a yes. great way that is not intimidating. And that's what we're all about too. We want to make wine um, something that people can feel confident with, that they, um, it's all, we're always learning. And I want all of our listeners to know that no matter what level you're at, beginning or, you know, you know, a, a bunch you're always learning. And that's what to me is fascinating about wine. There's no way to know everything. I know that I'm always learning. And, um, and I love it when I can, you know, pick up a fun book like this wine Bible and turn to any page and like, Oh, this, you know, here's something fun about the quick sip on Greek wines. Um, so true. You know, and your stories are fascinating. They're fun and your love of wine and wine culture the culture of wine, the people, the places, it's infectious. So mm -hmm. uh, can't say enough good stuff about your passion for wine and all the ways you've helped educate all of us. And again, the Wine Bible, this third edition, it is a great gift idea. Oh, totally. And I, it, I believe it is very widely available, yes. but I think I heard you say that if you buy it through your website, you'll even inscribe it for people. Yes, thanks, Mary. Um, yes, you can buy the Wine Bible everywhere, of course, where books are sold, as they say. But if you would like it personalized, either to you or to someone you know or love or a colleague, a friend, uh, if you'd like it personalized as a gift, then uh, yes, you can go on winespeed.com uh, and order. There's a little tab there that says um, the Wine Bible, and it will allow you to uh, purchase it right there. And you can tell us to whom you would like it personalized. And I'll sign it and we will send it off to you or your friend straight away. Fantastic. And Karen, is winespeed.com the best way for our listeners to find you, to follow you, to sign up for your newsletter? Winespeed.com uh, is or karenmcneil.com. And all of our social media uh, handle it, handles are Karen McNeil Co. So Karen McNeil and then just CO for company, Karen McNeil Co. Um, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook and and uh, yeah, all of the all of the great platforms. All you right. Have well, a, you have a great Instagram feed, by the way. Thank you. We will make sure to link all of this for our listeners yes, on yes. sipsitparadepodcast.com as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Karen, thank you for spending this time with us and for sharing your love of wine and, and giving us a peek into the Wine Bible third edition. And uh, we wish you all the best with your continuing book tour and continued success to you. 
Thank you so much, Mary and Mary. I really, really appreciate your taking the time and interviewing me today. Oh gosh, we so appreciate your taking the time <laughs> out of your super busy schedule to speak with us and you know to um, give our listeners an insight to not just the wine Bible, but to you because what a fascinating background, career, a journey you've had in wine. Yeah, we are definitely fans. As I said <laughs> off the top, you. The, the Marys are in your in your um, your crew. <laughs> All right. Well, I, thank you so much, and I'm I'm off to do our office tasting. Yay! Uh, okay. For the uh, the evening, I think it's all set up. So everyone here is looking at me impatiently. Like, yeah, like come on, come on Karen. We're getting thirsty. All right. Or well, cheers. Okay. <laughs> okay. Sip, sip, hooray, and thanks again. Thank you both. Cheers, cheers Karen. Well, Mary Orlin, what a fun conversation with Karen McNeil. She is such a font of knowledge and yet such a friendly and kind person. Um, and the same is true for her book, The Wine Bible. It is a font of knowledge. It is everything you want to know about wine is in here, but it's really friendly and it takes a... Mm, it, you don't have to be a wine expert to get into it. It's sort of for, for all of us. Well, that's the thing I love about Karen and her work, what she does, not just with the Wine Bible, but with her Instagram, with her newsletter, Wine Speed. She's really making wine something that is available to everybody, anybody, no matter what your level of knowledge or interest in wine is. And, you know, going into this interview, you know, was she going to be stuffy and a wine snob and all that? And clearly she's not. And I didn't think she would be, but um, I'm just so pleased. I mean, you know, I want to celebrate her success. I mean, from, you know, her humble, humble beginnings and running away from home. And she really is a self-made woman and a very successful one. And she started at a time when it was a male dominated industry and she has shown the boys that she um, can, you know, best them all. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the wine Bible, as I said, at the end of the show, it does make a great gift. Yes. Uh, it's a great housewarming gift. It's a great um, wedding gift. It's a great yeah. holiday gift. I will tell you that while we were talking, I went on to line and ordered it because I'm going to see a friend in, a, in about a week or so and she's very much into wine I thought she will love this book and her name oh, is perfect. Karen too so oh, perfect, perfect. <laughs> so Karen McNeil you've racked up another sale <laughs> during the podcast right <laughs> <laughs> love it all right well that's going to do it for our show today we thank you all so much for listening and we hope that if you enjoyed it you share it with your friends you rate us you help us promote sip sip hooray and get the word out about our our podcast right so um whatever platform you listen on especially if you're listening to us on apple Podcasts or itunes go in give us a rating give us a review we read them we appreciate them um and um you can find i will be posting all the information from this episode on our website sip sip hooray podcast.com you can also follow us at sip sip hooray podcast on Instagram and Facebook and on Twitter we are sip sip hooray the number one all right well it is time for me 
to start dinner. And as Karen says in the wine Bible, her, her definition of a cooking wine is a wine you drink while cooking. Exactly. <laughs> so it's time for me to figure out what wine I'm going to drink while cooking dinner that tonight. sounds good to me. <laughs> Maybe I'll pull out a Brunello since that was um, the wine that she was so passionate about when I was at one of her seminars. Great idea. All right. Until we talk again, Mary Orland, cheers to you. Cheers, Mary Babbitt. Sip, sip, hooray, everybody, and happy holidays. Yay.